Hello and welcome to this, the third episode of Bigger, Faster, Better, a podcast box set from Energy Voice in paid partnership with Womble Bond Dickinson. The aim of this series is to look at which countries are developing the most sustainable, innovative and scalable energy solutions. What we can all learn from each other and, well, I suppose who's doing it bigger, faster and also better. Over the course of these five episodes, we're going to take a look at how the UK is shaping up in its race to cut emissions and move towards net zero. And also how this compares with other countries working to similar ends. My name is Ed Reed. I'm an editor here at Energy Voice, where we are leading the global energy conversation. And I'm delighted to welcome Anthony Alderman, a partner at Womble Bond Dickinson. And joining us from Denmark is Ulrich Striedbeck, Head of Regulatory Affairs at Orsted. Over the course of the Bigger, Faster, Better series, we're looking at how these various aspects of the energy transition is working out. And this, the third episode, we're going to be looking at offshore wind, how it has a part to play, and how the UK and Denmark may work to develop this technology. I think it's pretty clear that the two countries are heavyweight in the offshore wind space. And uh, I'm delighted to say that Ofsted is obviously developing projects in both and indeed further afield. And I think I'm right in saying that uh, the company was the back of the world's first offshore wind project in, in 1991. Both the UK and Denmark have got through their early stage nascent difficulties uh, that some other technologies such as hydrogen are still getting to grips with. And it feels like technologies mature with offshore wind, although I'm sure there's still scope for improvement. But I think there are questions around how to incorporate this resource into the evolving energy stack. How do we tackle those questions around pricing, location, support, competitiveness? I think regulatory uh, support is, is, is going to be a, a key factor, I suppose, to start off with. And, and, and the UK has got some pretty big targets on this regard. It, it aims to have 40 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030. And there's a number of new entrants coming into the field, including what might once have been described as oil companies. Denmark's also got some, some big projects in the works and with some particularly interesting thoughts around energy islands. But first, Anthony, I'm going to start with you. We've had big commitments, international agreements, and most recently in Glasgow, of course. To what extent do you think political will is important to the development of offshore wind? And I suppose as prices come down, is this political will, this support still going to be as important? I think the days where political support in the nature of direct funding being a prerequisite are probably past us. And the current subsidy regime operates differently. But I think the broader framework of the target for net zero and needing the 40 gigawatt by uh, 2030 and the, the, the even larger ambitions post that date are still important because the desire for net zero generation, the desire for increased use of renewable and clean green electricity is the foundation stone for the demand. Uh, and without the demand, there would be no reason to develop the generation offshore to fulfil it. So I think that broader political commitment and framework is is still vital. Um, and I think the certainty provided by the contracts for difference regime is still important uh, to providing a commercial framework for developers to, uh, to spend money into. Sure. And Ulrich, I mean, I think, you know, Austin clearly considering international investments, you know, we, we've mentioned Denmark and the UK. Obviously, you've got 
interest further afield, the US, other other areas. How important do you see that kind of question of political will in terms of sort of driving, I suppose, where you decide to make those investments? And I suppose also sort of tying into this, it feels like Denmark, uh, I think it was in November, you know, launched the uh, the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance, which which kind of felt like a like a really interesting and important step for a country to take to say, you know, we're sort of moving away from hydrocarbons in this particular way. How do you think political will works in, in, in Denmark and, and obviously also globally? Political commitment and will has been the driver uh, from day one in this. But uh, the dynamics of it has completely changed. I very much agree with Anthony that uh, in Denmark and in the UK, the discussion has changed from quarreling about how much we can afford and who to fund into one of now we cannot afford not to develop offshore wind. Now it's more a discussion about uh, how much, how fast, how do we manage uh, the planning, the consent, the permits, how do we match the development with the demand, those sorts of things the risks uh, associated with that. This is where political commitment and political uh, will is still plays a huge role to, together with the industry, uh, manage uh, risks and, and create the, uh, this outlook. But there are still uh, other markets, uh, less mature, where the conversation is about how is it that we can catch up with the mature markets like Denmark and the UK, where the discussion is still also about uh, how how to fund and how to support this uh, more directly. But in the UK and in Denmark, we are still hand in hand, both countries helping each other, supporting each other uh, into taking the offshore wind industry to to the new age, to to the next generation. And I suppose just to sort of you know build on that a little bit, I suppose obviously there's that kind of question about political will and and the importance. But do you think that there's still enough sort of driving force behind the development of Sherman? I mean, I, I feel you know speaking to sort of politicians, there's maybe a sort of a something of an acceptance that that it's kind of there already, and that that maybe they need to be sort of working on other areas. You know, they're sort of oh, you know, how do we how do we incentivize hydrogen, for instance, or or, or, or CCS? And they've maybe sort of taken their eyes slightly off the offshore wind ball. I don't know if it's fair to say that policymakers have taken their eyes off the ball. I think we have to acknowledge that those aims that has been put forward, both by Danes and uh, the Danish government and the, and, the, and the British government, is, is the right thing and is what uh, leads us. But in the detail, in how to actually realize this, I would point to two big topics that also goes along the lines that you mentioned, Ed. Number one is, how is it that we actually find the space? The, the last fourth round of site allocations in the UK and similar discussions in Denmark, where the last auction actually in Denmark triggered a, a huge cash flow to the state the treasury. That signals, of course, the competitiveness of offshore wind, but these huge prices paid for sites in the UK also highlights that if you are not able to provide enough space, enough sites for us to develop, yeah, then the price, you, then you have a shortage of supply and the price goes up. One of the hardships that has to be addressed is to make enough sites available. 
So that's number one, not an easy one, not an easy task, but but very, very important. And number two, speaking about hydrogen, the great uncertainty for us investors today is not the technology. We master the technology. We know how to do it, and it's competitive. But the big risk, the big uncertainty is demand. Will there be anyone who needs our electrons? And demand is becoming very, very political because electrification for EVs, for hydrogen, for all these industrial processes, those will also be politically driven and outside of our control. I very much agree with Anthony that this is why we still, the contracts for difference setup is still very, very useful to manage those uh, risks uh, and uncertainties. But it's the need for it has changed from being something related to the projects into something related to the market and, and, and the balance of supply and demand. We're going to come back to that kind of question of technology in a moment. But, but Anthony, I'm going to come to you and just picking up on, on Ulrich's first point about that kind of question about competitiveness and, and, and I suppose, prices. And I think, you know, we've, we've obviously seen a lot of excitement in, in, in the, the offshore uh, rounds recently, Scotland, uh, and, and, and the, the, the sheer amount of, of cash that seems to be flowing into the sector and the, and, the, and the sort of the variety, the new entries. I mean, you know, BP, for instance, Total Energies is, and, and these, these, you know, the, it just seems to be sort of, you know, I suppose, is it bidding up the, 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 the sort of sector? Is there, is there a risk that there's too much competition in the offshore wind sector? And is that, do you think that might maybe set some problems for the future where going in so strong to start off with, these companies may not be able to follow through with, with these really significant commitments? That's a really good question, Ed. I think there are two sides to that. Um, one is that the uh, part of the reduction in the sites that were offered um, was the result of a process to find what should be the best sites and therefore the most likely to succeed. So I, I don't think that the prices offered were necessarily predicted until they happened. Um, and that's a result, I think, of those new entrants just having very deep pockets and enormous free cash flow that, that they could throw at this. But hopefully the result of the areas that were chosen for prospective development mean that the attrition rate of those sites will be lower and the uh, the success rate higher. The other side of it goes into that position of offshore wind within the broader energy context that Ulrich was talking about. And I think that that goes to all the other bits of the energy market and regulatory setup that somebody building the offshore wind farm doesn't necessarily control. Uh, so at the moment, a developer in the UK, I, d I don't know how similar the process is in Denmark, but in the UK, you would have to get your site from the Crown Estate. You then go through the development consent order process and get consent. You then get your contracts for differences in, in the sort of auctions that come around every two years. In, during that process, you need to get your grid connection as well. So you're reliant on a lot of other processes happening with requisite speed. Um, and grid connection particularly is, is challenging at the moment. So I think that's where the real difficulty and challenge is in some respects. It, it, it is to make the higher sums paid work. You need to facilitate quick and certain development uh, for developers so they know they can get those schemes off the ground and make make the prices work. 
Is that a sort of a similar process that uh, that you're facing in Denmark? There are similarities, certainly. The setup is somewhat different. There's not this two-step approach, first with the Crown Estate to get the site and then bidding for the contract. In Denmark, it's it's in one in one step where you both get the site and the contract in the same auction. And the last auction just concluded very recently was actually one where there was a CFD contract offered, but it was with a cap to the revenue paid out, which meant uh, actually if you wanted to bid zero, you would start out through the contract to pay a certain sum to the government. And then afterwards, it's on merchant terms. And it turned out that there were five bidders willing to bid zero and uh, thereby actually uh, paying a sum to the government through the first years, and then it will be on market terms. There was a lottery between the five, and one won. Uh, Orsted was one of the five, and it was uh, the German developer RWE who won. I think everyone agrees that that is not the best approach to this. It was a milestone because it proved the competitiveness uh, because what had before been a subsidy turned into an income for the, for the state. So that that is remarkable uh, and thereby also similar to the will of, of BP to pay enormous sums for, for a site in the UK. So, it, so we are truly at a different stage in, in the development of the industry. But I also do think that we we need to go about this in a different way. We need to ask ourselves, certainly in Denmark, is it really that simple that you just go out there, decide what to pay to the government, and then you squeeze your costs as much as you can, and you just deliver your off your wind farm? Or is it better to take a more holistic view on this and think about the other value creation that can be developed. For example, link, linking the offshore wind farm to hydrogen batteries, making demands about uh, sustainability, biodiversity, making um, the, 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 the tender more complex, reflecting the fact that it is more complex and that you can get a higher value creation. We think that's the route to take. And we do so also coming back to Anthony's point that if very large sums have been paid by a developer upfront in the UK or in Denmark, somehow those funds have to be recovered. And somehow there is only one party to pay that, and that is the customer. And is this really what we want for our green transformation, for our decarbonization? I think we, we need to develop these systems going forward, first of all, by making more space available for this increasing supply that that should uh, reduce at least this uh, this pressure for everyone's everyone's benefit not least the pace of the uh, decarbonization yeah and i think i think there there's some really interesting points you brought up there Ulrich. you know technology i think we're going to we're going to pick up on later but i think we're going to have a short break and then we'll come back in a moment Womble Bond Dickinson is a transatlantic law firm with a keen focus on the energy sector. 
As part of its Rebuild Britain campaign, Womblebond Dickinson is looking at the energy transition and its role in the UK achieving its net zero ambitions. The Bigger, Faster, Better podcast series will explore how the UK performs in comparison to other countries in key renewable technologies. Great. And I, I think there are some really interesting points there about technology that, that, that Ulrich raised. Anthony, what are your thoughts? I mean, obviously, you know, we, we, we've talked about, I suppose, uh, hydrogen. We've talked about the ways in which the offshore wind sector is changing. I suppose CFDs also play into that, that question of, of change in technology. Do you feel that, that, that the sector is, is mature now? Do you think there's still room to run? I think the, uh, the fixed turbine technology is probably in a mature phase now. What, what's still new is floating wind, uh, and that that is vital, certainly for the UK's further deployment, uh, just because of the water depths that you now need to go into, which, again, it, it plays into Ulrich's point about how you use the space. Uh, if you look at offshore wind development in the UK at the moment, it's quite focused in areas in the North Sea, and also in the Irish Sea, uh, if you want to really exploit some areas off Scotland, uh, the Celtic Sea, so sort of South Wales, um, offshore uh, Cornwall, um, those areas, you're working at much greater depths where fixed turbines are far more difficult. And their deployment of floating offshore will be really important. Uh, and we've got at the moment, we, there's, there's one operational floating offshore wind farm in the UK at Highwind uh, in Scotland, uh, which I think is about 30 megawatts. So it's it's a, quite a, a testing stage. But getting that up, that technology up to full commercial deployment will be really important to fully utilising some of those new areas of seabed. Sure. I mean, Ulrich, you, you, you've mentioned hydrogen, you mentioned batteries. Is there anything else that, uh, that that we should be keeping an eye on in terms of how technology may be, may, may be changing? I, I, I saw something uh, recently about maybe offshore wind turbines, perhaps refueling electric boats. What do you think the chances are for, 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 for technological change? Overall, I, I very much agree with Anthony that, that the bottom fixed uh, turbine is quite far down the maturity curve. And the new frontier being uh, floating, we look very much forward to engage in that as well in Ørsted. Of course, there is always room for improvement in any also mature technologies, as we see in cars and other places, uh, automation, digitalization. But, uh, but we, are, we are quite far into the um, maturity curve. So I think it's exactly right that it's the development in technology going forward is more on the associated uh, activities around the turbine. We have just uh, announced a partnership and engagement related to uh, electric uh, uh, ships, uh, exactly. Uh, I saw also the other day Maersk uh, developing a bio, bio for charging uh, such ships. So some interesting things happening around the extended sustainability of the supply chain, uh, if you put it that way. And, and then another thing that I think will be really the, the, the center of attention is the grid structures around offshore wind. Ed, you mentioned before the uh, energy islands that actually an almost full parliament has agreed to, to embark on in Denmark, where we are going to connect a cluster of offshore wind farms uh, up to 10 gigawatt 
with not only Denmark, but also with other countries. And there you will have to develop, not, not invent, it, the technologies exist, but you have to deploy uh, HVDC transmission uh, infrastructure in new ways, uh, in new setups, and all of this offshore. So that's, that's going to be uh, a big thing. And secondly, also, of course, uh, how to make this work more or less directly linked with, uh, for example, hydrogen uh, electrolysis. I mean, I think the, the artificial island idea is, is, is really fascinating. Could you just shed a little bit more light on how that would work? I mean, is that, is that something that the, the state does or, or is it like a consortium of companies that come together? And then, I mean, how, how, how do you sort of wrangle this infrastructure into servicing presumably an array of different wind turbine projects? The idea, the, the concept is that, first of all, to accelerate the build out, we will need to take this step change up where you start to develop clusters of offshore wind farms. And uh, they need to be connected in an intelligent way. And the, the idea is that if you create a hub around these offshore wind farms and connect the hub to more countries, then you, are, you, are, you're, you can optimize this. To create this hub, it can be useful to, to locate these very, very heavy HVDC uh, converter stations in an artificial island instead of platforms. So that's the first line of thought. Then having done that, uh, the next question is, can we use that artificial island also for other things? What if we find uh, out that it's a good idea to produce the hydrogen offshore, for example? Could we place the, the electrolyzer offshore? And it is to pursue those concepts that Denmark has decided to go down this route. It has also been decided in Belgium, for example, to, to, to do it in a slightly smaller scale. And the idea in Denmark is that this artificial island in the North Sea will be described and put out in a tender for a consortia to bid into. And uh, we have announced uh, together with the largest Danish pension fund that we will form such a consortium together with industrial leaders. And we are now then uh, in dialogue with, with the, the Danish uh, energy agency about the market framework, about how this tender uh, will look like. And uh, we are developing our, our version of the energy island. And there will be other consortia, I'm sure, to also uh, a bit. Uh, Anthony, what what do you think? Does this sound like the sort of concept that would work in the UK? I mean, should we be taking notes on the on the artificial islands, or or, or have we got uh, an alternative plan? I think it's a fascinating idea. It's, it's really fascinating idea, and it begins to open up this vision of of the North Sea as a sort of interconnected electricity generating resource that actually serves all of the countries with with coastlines with with north sea coastlines so it's really really exciting and as i say fascinating uh, i think one of the things that it it highlights is that there are two two parts to innovation one is technology um, the the other is the sort of regulatory innovation that allows for that technology to play its role um, and Ulrich's outlined how for the artificial island um, in, in Denmark, they're, they're trying to structure that. I think there are challenges on the horizon on the UK side. One is the offshore 
transmission network review, which is, I think, generally seen as having progressed at a, at a relatively slow pace. But that's all about the same stuff. How do you, how do you efficiently connect offshore generation of different types and make sure it can be transmitted and used in the best ways? Uh, and the UK definitely has some hard work to do on that. There are other examples like battery storage. Um, so the regime in the UK still sees electricity as generation, transmission, distribution, and those are three very distinct activities. And storage doesn't really feature, so it's treated as generation. It doesn't really work terribly well. And onshore generation projects incorporate batteries within the project. Offshore, that's that's harder to do. It's harder and more expensive to site storage offshore and you're storing electricity before it's gone through your transmission line. So you're storing electricity, some of which is going to be taken out by resistance down that line. So it's a, it's another example of where the regulatory regime doesn't really help employ some of this innovative technology in the best ways. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic idea, and it, it does give an insight as to what the North Sea might look like in 50 years' time if we, we get all of this right. I don't think the UK is quite there yet in terms of a similar idea. I think you you, you kind of come, you come back to sort of that idea of political will, and I think that's a really interesting point that it kind of keeps it. We I suppose we sort of started the discussion with this sort of feeling of you know is it is it still something that we need? And I, I guess both of you are clearly saying yes, we still need uh, innovation and development on this front. I suppose one of the one of the points that that really kind of plays into that kind of political uh, will or desire is about sort of local content, isn't it? And I think, you know, increasingly it's a, it's a, it's a really kind of political issue. And, and obviously every country is keen to, you know, bolster local industry as best they can. Anthony, I'm going to stay with you. What, what do you think the best way for a government to try and sort of support local industry? I think, you know, there, there are ideas, but, you know, should, we, should, should the government be mandating targets? Should there be quotas? Should there be encouragements? Should it perhaps feature into the sort of the, the, the bid requirements that, you know, that, that, that Ulrich was mentioning? How, how's the best way to tackle this? It's difficult to see what uh, or to form a judgment as to how governments best intervene. And to some extent, that's a political question, isn't it, as to how you view government and government intervention in the economy. I think it's something perhaps of a hot potato in Britain, partly because of the lack of manufacturing around offshore wind that's been based in in the UK, notwithstanding we've rolled out more than um, anywhere else. The Brexit debate probably uh, plays into it a little bit as well. How you do it, I think there's a mix of options, isn't there? There's there's a, attempting to create an attractive regime. Um, so things like the Freeports Agenda in the UK uh, is, is aimed at that. Whether it's attractive enough is something we'll find out. There's a sort of seed funding. So on floating offshore, there was, uh, I think, uh, 30-odd million of sort of quite quite small funding amounts to innovative projects and uh, technology development announced uh, two, three weeks ago. So there's that kind of initiative. And, and there's the uh, the stick of putting it in your CFD requirements um, or, or elsewhere that basically say you've got to have so much local content. I suspect the, the third of the three is probably the most effective. It's the bluntest tool, but it kind of forces the issue. Because if you don't comply, you you don't get your bid. 
whether politically that's seen as a desirable thing to do, I think goes to the, the sort of political view as to whether the laissez-faire economic model is the right one or a more state-mandated um, model is the right one. Ulrich, I'm sure that Austin faces uh, this issue around the world. I mean, what 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 is your experience? I mean, I, I mean, I suppose you're presumably uh, you know not uh, entirely uh, keen to, to 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 push the idea of of local content mandates. But but what do you think is the best way to to, to sort of try and strike that balance between securing the investment and sort of securing local employment and I suppose local benefits as a result? You know, there's there's so many facets in this uh, discussion, and uh, I don't really know where to start, but 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 let me start with maybe the beginning. The industry developed in uh, in the UK in a way where uh, billions and billions of pounds were were given to develop this, and the UK has uh, been the, the 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 place for a lot of capacity, uh, the majority of capacity in some phases. It's it's a natural thing that a very strong uh, supply base develops in the UK, and uh, when that didn't happen, I think it's fair to see that as a, as a problem. So I think it's absolutely fair and a natural thing that that is a, that is raised uh, on a political level in the UK. The idea of developing, for example, uh, supply chain plans, which was the, the the British approach, we think that's a that was a very good tool because it at least created the uh, visibility and it, it, it led to good conversations about skills and about, uh, you know, think twice about how you do things. So, so we, are, we are happy with that. On the other hand, of course, we also all benefit greatly uh, from free trade. And we honor this uh, concept of, of letting those do things that are, uh, you know, bo- most capable. That's how our societies are built. So that balance, uh, of course, has to be struck. And that goes both for countries that are within the European Union and for countries that are not in, within the European Union. It's, it's about, you know, it's about the market economics. Something uh, funny has also happened that we talked about before. That is that we have moved from being an industry that society paid billions and billions of Danish kroner and British pounds to into one that is competitive. So, and we are even uh, reversing the flow. That also influences this conversation about the supply chain and, 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 and those discussions about obligations. So very, very uh, uh, difficult uh, discussion to be had. We are very happy with the approach of the supply chain plan. And, and we think it's a, a natural thing extremely important that the skills discussion uh, carries on both in Denmark and the UK. We need skilled labor. Uh, We need uh, the engineers. And then I also think that the the longer term, most interesting and most important price for any supply chain company in the UK and in Denmark and in any other country is that they become competitive and relevant in a global market. Because if we have created companies in the supply chain that are basically not globally competitive, they will have a short life anyway. So it's, it's about solving these issues in a, in a very thoughtful way. Uh, we, we, are, we are very happy with the conversations that we have about these things in the UK. 
And, and and in your experience, I mean, is it is it a similar setup in 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 Denmark? I mean, is do they do, does 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 Denmark take a different approach to the local content question? Uh, two things about that that is extremely different from the UK. The first thing is that Denmark is the size and the population of uh, a part of London. You know, we are we are not even six million people, and uh, if we are too uh, focused on who does what, then we are basically out of business, the entire country. We live of other countries. We live of, of uh, producing, exporting, uh, sh- shipping. So uh, we, we, we have to be very, very careful about the, uh, those things. But the conversations are, of course, also there in Denmark, uh, undoubtedly. And there is an ongoing conversation about intervention and industrial policy, but probably mainly focused on how to support through skills, through, you know, infrastructure and, and those sorts of things. The other thing that is very different is that Denmark was the pioneer. The UK was also absolutely the pioneer in offshore wind, but we were the pioneers in wind. So when this got off the ground, we had the industry. We had uh, the, uh, the wind turbine manufacturers. We had the industry many companies in the supply chain. So Denmark uh, has always been and is still really benefiting from this whole industrial adventure, also the one in the UK. So also for that reason, uh, the Danes uh, should think twice before putting out such uh, demands. The, the conversation is very different. Sure, sure, sure. And, and, and with one eye on the clock, I, I see we're, we're we're heading towards our time. So, so chaps, I'm just going to ask you, just in closing, if you could maybe each sort of choose just one sort of point that you think the UK or, or Denmark is doing particularly well. Ulrich, I'm going to start with you. What do what do you think that that, that Denmark is doing particularly well that that the UK and and other parts of the world could take a look at and see that this is uh, an interesting model to follow right now. I really believe that not only the government, but an almost united parliament is ambitious at a new level, really leaning forward with targets and aims and ambitions and policy measures that are cutting edge uh, at some points, or at least on par with other countries on hydrogen, offshore wind, CCS, CCU, Many of these uh, items, uh, that is something that is hopefully probably making Denmark one of the leaders uh, uh, again. So uh, having that boldness and ambition right now and unity, that is something that Denmark does uh, really well. And Anthony, what are, you, what are your thoughts about the UK? What, what can we uh, show, show the world or, or even Denmark in terms of our uh, offshore wind plans? I think if you if you look back over the way that offshore wind has developed in the UK, whether or not it was all intentional, and no doubt these things are always a little bit of trial and error, a little bit of luck. But looking back, there's a coherency to the last 20 odd years in terms of what's happened. The planning regime has been modified and developed to help major infrastructure projects like offshore wind. There have been well-organised rounds of, uh, of, of tenders and rollouts. There's been a clear government commitment to offshore wind. There's been subsidy regimes that have changed over time. 
to match development and the end result has been a new and, and a huge industry sector market now attracting new entrants, um, a, a new investment asset class in terms of offshore wind for investment funds. So I think for any anywhere embarking now on a rollout of offshore wind, they they would doubtless want to look at that, and and you know I'd, I'd hope there are positives there that, that they could learn from. I think the challenge is to make sure that someone looking back in 2050 sees 30 years, you know, 2020 to 2050, in the same way and sees that same coherency in the way we deal with the next three decades. A very quick remark from me. First of all, thank you for inviting me and Denmark to this podcast. And uh, if we in Denmark manage to decarbonize, we will have contributed with the global CO2 uh, reduction emissions on the third or the fourth decimal. If you do it in the UK, you are, I think, on the right side of the percentage. Uh, uh, it, it, is, it is not at least only a small, tiny, tiny dent. So I think those perspectives also have to be uh, put in order. But thank you for inviting me. Well, fantastic. Thank you both so much, Anthony and Ulrich, for taking the time out to, to, to come and talk to us about uh, offshore wind today. I think there have been some really interesting conclusions that we can draw. And I think, I suppose one of them is, is just how critical government support still is in this ongoing sort of offshore wind. Despite the maturity of the sector, it still seems really critical. I think there were some really interesting uh, points that have been have been brought up. I mean, I think the energy island concept in Denmark seems like a really interesting way to tackle that problem of transmission. And I suppose that's really where we're going to see, perhaps, as we've suggested, the continuing evolution is 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 it, we're moving beyond the sort of the focus on on the big blades to to the wires and 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 what next, what comes down the line. I suppose it's really about collaboration in the end. And, and as Ulrich has said, the, it, it does feel clear that the, the UK is a bigger market and it, it can attract attention from Orsted. And it's going to play a key part in driving that transition to net zero. Denmark and the UK are, are both really strong leaders in this sector. And it'll be interesting to see how other countries choose to copy or not the learnings from these two countries, which bits they may take or may not take. So to our listeners, please let us know your thoughts on this topic through the Energy Voice social media channels or by emailing outloud at energyvoice.com. And if you'd like to be part of the conversation and share your story with the energy industry, you can email outloud at energyvoice.com too. While I'm here, I'd like to encourage you to uh, tune into our regular weekly news episodes. We have the weekly Energy Voice Out Loud, which is available in all good podcast uh, appliances and you can get that as well as every episode of bigger faster better as these episodes drop next up bigger faster better heads to germany to discuss the other side of the equation with a look at onshore wind but for this the third episode of our new podcast series bigger faster better i've been ed reed thank you for listening out loud is the podcast from energy voice leading the global energy conversation Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Outloud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Outloud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.